and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Last Sunday, our children told us that they had been learning about initiative. What is initiative? All right, so we have learned. We just need to be reminded a little bit because we've already moved on from initiative to individuality. So I'm, I'm really digging deep into the treasure chest of their hearts. And I entitled this message, Jesus Takes the Initiative. Jesus sees something that needs to be done, and he does it. Jesus' accusers have been stunned into silence. But Jesus knows that there are some things that they and the disciples needed to learn. So Jesus scoots from the passenger seat over into the driver's seat. Over the last few weeks, our scripture lessons have been dealing with Jesus responding to the challenges of others. But now he determines to speak before being asked. And he gives some clear instructions that remain relevant even to this room at this time. One of the reasons that I support the work of Gideon's International is because I remember when I received my first Red Testament as a fifth grader. 
And as a young boy about the age of Austin, I remember the Gideon speaker coming to our church and showed blue testaments that went to university students and green testaments that went to the military and white testaments that went to nurses. And I was impressed that the word of God could go so many different directions. And so for over 50 years, I have been committed to the work of Gideon's International because of their core commitment to the word of God. The word that they print and distribute not only tells how to become children of God, but then how to live as children of God. And today's Bible reading gives us three instructions that we must heed if we are to live right as God intends. But first, a very, very quick review of how we got to this place in Jesus's earthly ministry. Luke chapter 7 through 19, Jesus has invited the crowds to follow him. He has invited the crowds to embrace the kingdom of God. The earliest chapters of Luke, chapters 1 through 6, establish with historical reliability who Jesus was and his right to claim lordship. Then these next 12 chapters are filled with various invitations for people to align themselves with the coming kingdom. After these invitations, we see in chapters 19 and 20 that Jesus was then interrogated by the chief priests who rejected the kingdom. Organized religion had set up a profitable kingdom for themselves. They had perverted what God intended as an expression of his mercy in their midst, And they twisted it into a self-serving sweetheart deal. And these religious zealots realize that the devotion of the crowd is beginning to swing. So they attempt to intimidate and to shame Jesus with their interrogation. But Jesus' answers are like mic drops that echo off the walls of Jerusalem. And having hushed all of his critics, Jesus now asserts himself to answer the questions that are not being asked. In these verses this morning, Jesus invests in those who will accept the call to kingdom of living. And Jesus through these words, is investing in us if we will accept that call to live within the kingdom. Jesus' investment here makes three deposits into their rightful understanding of the kingdom. The first deposit is a rightful throne. For we see in verses 41 through 44 that Jesus indeed is greater than David. In the preceding verses, Jesus taught the authority from the teaching of Moses, who was Israel's greatest leader. For you will remember that God delivered 
But Moses led. So it would be wrong to call Moses Israel's greatest deliverer. But Moses was their greatest leader. And so from these words in the previous verses, now Jesus clearly says that he is greater than Israel's greatest king. For David was the last king to rule over the United Kingdom before it split into the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah. And to this very day, the emblem on the Israeli flag is the star of David, because David is to this day viewed as Israel's greatest king. But Jesus says that he is greater than David. Luke has made a point of Jesus's descent from David's line. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 27, verse 32, verse 69, chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 31. Over and over again, Luke has said Jesus is a descendant of David. And Jesus has never objected to being addressed as the son of David. In chapter 18, verses 38 and 39, they called him, Is this not the son of David? And subsequently, they call him their king. They call him their king. But Jesus answers this question, although it is not asked. If Jesus descended from David, how could he be greater than David? And Jesus answers this question by quoting David's own writing in Psalm 110. Now, modern scholarship doubts that Psalm 110 was written by David. But in the time of Jesus, they generally accepted Psalm 110 were David's words. So Jesus quotes what they think are David's words when he says, The Lord says to my Lord, What? Basically what he says is the Lord Yahweh says to David's Lord or his Adonai. So let's put it this way. Yahweh says to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. See, Luke has already established Jesus as the son of David. So why now does Luke seem to question what he has already established? It's because Jesus regarded the title as true. In the flesh, he was a descendant of David. However, the title son of David was inadequate because he is more than just another David. He is David's Lord. He is David's master. He is David's Adonai. So having established Jesus' authority as being both greater than the historical Moses and greater than the historical David, Jesus moves to an example that is right in front of their faces. Not only was Jesus the rightful throne over Israel, But Jesus says, if we are to have a right understanding of the kingdom, we need to have a rightful devotion. In verse 45 of chapter 20 through verse 4 of chapter 21, Jesus relates that faith 
is greater than fanfare. Matthew's account in chapter 23, Jesus rips on those leaders for a whole chapter. But Mark and Luke, as they tell this story, shorten the exchange to emphasize the contrast that is set up by Jesus. Instead of going on and on about what's wrong with the scribes, Jesus says, notice here together we have the scribes and we have this widow. We have the powerful and we have the faithful. And Jesus says that the faith of the faithful is greater than the fanfare of the powerful. Earlier in chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus has pronounced a woe and a warning upon the Pharisees. He says, watch out, Pharisees, woe to you if you seek honor. But now he takes that pronouncement and he explicitly warns his disciples. He explicitly reminds us of the same danger. We need to make sure that we do not live out the pretense of the scribes because Jesus honors the presentation of a widow. It tells us here that the the scribes or these religious leaders devoured widows' houses. And and people wondered, how, how did they... Were they out there with the sledgehammer destroying the houses of the widows? How, how did these religious people do that? And I, my best conclusion is that as the scribes, those who write the law, we would say those who wrote contracts, I concluded that they were writing contracts in such a way that exploited the poor for their own gain. And when the poor were exploited by their contracts, people would then ask, um, why, why, why are you treating the poor like that? And rather than give an excuse for their exploitation, they then would say, let us pray. And they would start a long, long prayer. And anybody that's seen a town hall between politicians and, and supposedly interaction with the public... The public asks a question, and if the politician doesn't know the answer or knows that the answer is going to look bad, the politician then goes into a long, elaborate explanation that has very little to do with the original question. And then at the end of the long explanation, without answering the initial question, the politician will say, next question, please. And the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees did the same thing. When they were called on the carpet for exploiting the widows, for which they had no excuse, they would just cover over with long, pretentious prayers. Because these legal experts had forgotten Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You say, that's no big deal, I forgot too. What does Micah 6, 8 say? Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly 
with your God. See, these people had forgotten this prophecy because their deeds were anything but just or kind. And their deeds were not just and they were not kind because they had long forgotten what a humble walk with God looked like. Jesus warns those around him to exchange the swagger of the scribes for the worship of a widow. And I think he's telling us the same thing, too. It's time to exchange the swagger for a heart of worship. Back in Luke's first chapter, Mary, humble Mary, offers a song of praise to God when she finds out that she will bear the Christ child. And her humble worship, the praise of young Mary, foreshadows the worship of this widow, who I presume is elderly. So from young to old, from first child to no more children, this is what we see. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. And as Mary foreshadows this attitude of the widow, she's able to give all that she has because she knows that the Lord fills the hungry with good things. This woman's worship actually put her faith to the test. It's not the amount of the the coins that she places that were important. It's the attitude. Not the amount, the attitude, because she had an attitude of worship, an attitude of faith that I am depending upon God and not the works of the hand. Because Romans chapter 14, verse 23 tells us that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This woman was living by faith. This woman's woman's very menu, her diet, was an expression of faith. Because these coins were all that she had. Remember what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us? Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And this woman is able to put in the last of her reserves because she believed that God exists. And she believed that God would reward her for her faithfulness. And to this day, God is calling us to walk by faith. Not to pursue the swagger of the powerful, but to walk. By faith, because that's what pleases our God. We have seen in front of us a rightful worship. We have seen a rightful devotion. 
and with a clear understanding of the rightness of trusting faith, Jesus returns to his rightful place as the object of that faith. People could not rest in temple life because the importance of the temple was about to change. In verses 5 and 6, we actually see that Jesus speaks about a rightful future, a future in which the Savior is greater than stones. Next week, we're going to drill down a little bit deeper into the future of the temple. So those of you who are interested in end times Bible prophecy, you'll want to be back next week as we'll drill down into what Jesus said, beginning in verse 7. See, Matthew's gospel kind of drills down into the contrast describing an event that would later happen in the week that Jesus said these words. The very week that Jesus says the stones are about to be crumbled, the great veil in the temple would rip from top to bottom, indicating that access to God would no longer be gained through a temple made with hands. And so Jesus here is prophesying what would happen that week as he sets up a prophecy of what's going to happen in years to come. But as Jesus and his disciples are there in the courtyard, they're impressed by the beauty of the offerings that are being made in this environment. Jesus hints that the dwelling place of God among his people is about to move. Because the Savior is greater than the stones. That central place of the worship of God and Mrs. People is about to move from the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the place beyond the veil, to the very hearts of believers as he takes up residence within us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Jewish historian Josephus described the scene this way, As we see in verse 6, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was ordained with noble stones and offerings, described by a non-Christian this way. If the Jerusalem temple had not been built by Jews, it would have been one of the seven wonders of the world. It was larger than even the temple of Diana in Ephesus, and it was more beautifully adorned than any comparable building. It took 83 years for Herod to build it, and it was completed only seven years before it was destroyed by the Romans. Herod doubled its size, and he turned it into a truly magnificent structure. Many of the pure white marble stones were massive, 67 by 12 feet in size. Can you imagine moving a 67 by 12 foot stone without the easy boy? And when the sun hit the facade... And the gold plates in the morning, it it was blinding in its brilliance. 
And in the beauty of this environment, Jesus says, I'm greater than your greatest king, and I deserve worship that is about to undergo a major change. Because no matter how beautiful these stones are, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And he's about to take up residence, not in the Holy of Holies, but within us. The rightful future is in a Savior, not in the stones. Now, it would be a misguided application as we look at a woman who gave her very her, her lunch money. It would be a misguided application to conclude that because Jesus is David's Lord and the perfect Savior, that I must give all my possessions and trust him to provide for me. That's what this woman did, but that's not a call, it's, it's not a command for all of us to do that. However, there are times when God's Spirit will prompt you to give extravagantly, prompted by faith to see His hand of provision. I say this based upon the truth of the Magnificat that God raises up, but I also share with you a personal example. Christmas time, 2013, in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Ann and I were attending the special holiday presentation at our church, and they were collecting a special offering for a homeless shelter. You can imagine what being homeless in Wisconsin in winter may look like. And although at that time we were living paycheck, almost to paycheck, God prompted me to give all that was in my pocket. We were preparing to go to the grocery store after service to shop for our Christmas dinner. I conferred with Ann, and she told me to obey the Spirit's prompting to empty my pockets for this homeless shelter. We thought, hey, it may mean macaroni and cheese. It may mean cereal and milk for Christmas dinner, but if God tells us, we need to obey. When we got home, the mailman had delivered a check from my out-of-state aunt who had never sent money to me before for a little bit more than the amount that we had just given to the homeless shelter. The timing and the amount were too specific to be a coincidence. There are those times where God will call us to give extravagantly. And when we do so in faith, not in some way to manipulate God into blessing us, but when we give expecting that He will take care of us, He does. R.T. France describes the setting where the woman gave her coins in this way. In the court of the women stood 13 large chests to receive monetary contributions. Dr. Grant Osborne has described these 13 as having a large bell made out of metal, like the old turnpike coins. 
big basket to funnel it down into the basket. And the coins would clink as they made their way from the funnel down into the chest. And a very skilled donor could toss that coin in such a way that it would clatter, 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 clatter all the way down, and everyone knew that they had put something into the offering. Of these 13, six were designated for free will offerings, and the other seven were for regular tithes or their taxes of tribute. As you leave this morning, there are baskets available for your worship through giving. And our guests will be receiving a free will offering for the Gideons. We're going to have, just like in the temple of the women, places for you to give to the temple, places for you to give free will. And I'm not going to presume to tell you how much or where to give. But I do believe the teaching of Jesus in today's text simply tells us that God is pleased when we worship him and when we give in faith. And my challenge for each of us is that we would magnify our love for God. We started this service by singing more love, more power, more of you in my life. And we're going to conclude by singing more love to thee. I invite you to stand with me as we will